This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. And if you all download it, I can stop saying that. Right, coming up then on what we now call Resignation Friday. Last week it was Dominic Raab. This week, Richard Sharp from the BBC. We'll discuss that with Gabriel Pogrant, the reporter, the Whitehall editor of the Sunday Times, who broke the original story. And our big thing today, Rock Against Racism, 45 years ago this weekend, massive concert in London. We'll hear from one of the organisers, we'll hear from Tom Robinson, who was on the bill, and Billy Bragg, who was in the crowd. Uh, but first, as ever, on a Friday, we'll kick off with the columnists. The columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. Now, it's now officially part. Oh. Of, it's now officially part of the jingle, James. Oh, I'm quitting. I quit. I don't do this anymore. Uh, <laughs> when it's now, it's now, it's now fixed. It's in the machine. It's going to be there forever. That is the saddest news I've heard in a long time. Uh, in fact, we played it, even though we don't actually have India Night, but it was so special. Uh, that was James last week, week before last. No, it was last week. you were on Jade and Fee, weren't you? Yeah. You were, you were in for Fee. Fee. In for fee, yeah, and you were hunched over, battering away at column. Yeah. Anyway, no Indian art this morning. So we have got Jenny Russell instead. Morning, Jenny. Good morning. Um, uh, how do you feel about James bashing away at his column? <laughs> <laughs> Silence speaks volumes. So, uh, it's multitasking. <laughs> what can I say? It's so impressive. Right. Let's let's come on. Let's concentrate. Let's talk about some serious some serious journalism. Uh, we've got the new, we had the news uh, this morning. Richard Sharp has resigned as chairman of the BBC after he failed to disclose two potential perceived conflicts of interest over his involvement in facilitating a loan for Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister, who then uh, recommended him become the chairman of the BBC. Well, the story was broken by the Sunday Times. Uh, Gabriel Pogrant, uh news news reporter extraordinaire for all the Sunday Times, that joins us now. Morning, Gabriel. Morning. Just get just sketch out for us the background to all of this. Uh, what actually went on and your role in claiming yet another scalp in public life? Well, the, the context is that um, a Canadian gentleman by the name of Sam Blythe, a distant cousin uh, of Boris Johnson's, connected via his father Stanley, uh, at some point in 2020 
decided to insert himself into conversations about bailing out uh, the, the then Prime Minister. Um, the, the Times had carried a report that Johnson was having to fork out, uh, you know, his own cash to fund um, entertainment at Chequers. Uh, there's obviously the Wallpapergate scandal um, over the decoration of his Downing Street flat. He had d- divorce payments, uh, childcare fees, and he was essentially in deep water financially. And uh, Blythe is a long-standing friend of Richard Sharp, who, after a conversation over dinner, agrees uh, to help Blythe um, a get in front of Johnson to discuss the idea, even uh, in, in greater detail. I can't can't claim to understand what that means, given that they're cousins. But that's an ambiguity we'll have to live with. And then, secondly, he says, "I'll go speak to Simon Case about it." And none of these facts, um, nor Sharp's subsequent conversations with Johnson about uh, his private finances, were, were ever disclosed uh, to the people entrusted with overseeing his appointment as BBC chair. And were it not for you revealing it, he would still be BBC chair because we wouldn't know anything about it because it, it was never sort of formally uh, made made public. That's right. I mean, there are all sorts of other things which weren't at any stage made public. I think perhaps the most disturbing one which has received actually the least scrutiny is, for instance, the fact that we still don't know who actually funded Boris Johnson's lifestyle while he was Prime Minister. We know that Sam Blythe was the backstop. He was a guarantor if the lender called in the loan. He said that he would uh, you know, back up the Prime Minister. But we, we still don't know who was actually financing the occupant of Downing Street um, yeah. you know, while he was at the top of government. So lots that we don't know and lots, therefore, for, uh, for, for, for journalists to, 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 to scrutinise and investigate. Jenny, who's this worse for? Is it worse for the BBC or worse for the Tories? I think it's worse for the Tories. I think the, the one thing that we're overlooking now and the brilliant journalism by Gabriel and by the Times is that the the one person who knew all along that this broke all the codes of behaviour, the one person who knew what was going on behind the scenes and the one person who was responsible was Boris Johnson. He knew perfectly well that he had decided to back as BBC chair somebody who had been involved in bailing him out for nearly a million pounds. And I, there's a lot of focus on Richard Sharp today and did he do wrong, but Richard Sharp was new to public life. Boris Johnson has been in public life for decades, and Boris Johnson was doing something which was basically corrupt here, and he knew it, and that's where I think we should be putting the focus now. James, interesting. Somebody's texted in saying, is there a definitive list of the lives and careers destroyed by Boris Johnson? It goes back to that old Matthew Paris, Matthew Paris's column that everyone who comes into contact with him ends up worse off as a result. It is extraordinary, isn't it? And how kind of naive everybody now looks for, you know, having got involved with them and having, you know, got sucked into this world of, you know, slight dodginess that Boris Johnson always seems to survive, um, you know, and also always now, you know, off making millions of pounds worth of speeches, but leaving this kind of trail of destruction in his wake. And you'd think someone would soon learn the lesson that, you know, if Boris Johnson starts making deals with you behind closed doors, it may end well for Boris Johnson, but not so well for you. And okay, but where does this go now? What 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 is it that you're? I mean, without giving away what might appear in the Sunday Times this weekend, what is it that we still don't know that you think we should know? Or is or is this the end of the chapter now that he has said he'll resign? I mean, I I, I would say that the uh, big question mark hovering over all of this is, um, well, probably twofold. Johnson's allies have been uh, very quick to inform us that he the loan was might have been uh, of a value up to eight hundred k. 
but that he drew down less. Uh, I'd quite like to know how much uh, he, he, he did 780,000 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 799 comment, 999. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but then um, beyond that, um, I mean, uh, I think as Jenny mentioned, um, <laughs> Boris Johnson, uh, very experienced man op- op- operating at the top of public life, um, uh, naturally didn't at any point see fit to tell us that he was dependent on the financial firepower of some something or somebody else. Um, and, and it seems extraordinary that we can't know. And, uh, you know, we, we've asked everybody, we've asked people off the record, we've asked people formally, and it seems that we, uh, you know, I mean, it don't, sorry, it doesn't seem this way. It is the case that yeah. we, uh, you know, li- live in a country where we're not allowed to know that sort of thing. I mean, pr- MPs have to say when they take £300 worth of hospitality from a gambling company, you know, go, go to the football or to the races, we can't know who funded our Prime Minister, and that, that seems to be a bit of a problem. Gable. I think he was completely right that, that, that it actually should be a requirement that prime ministers should report on whoever they're indebted to. It's a complete scandal that we don't know this. And Boris Johnson should be pursued about it. And I think the other thing that really matters here is that I think Richard Sharp, from all reports, was doing a good job at the BBC. He's an intelligent yeah. man. He's committed to it. But other very good candidates were explicitly told, candidates like Amber Rudd and Nicky Morgan, not to apply because Boris Johnson had already decided on who his favoured candidates were. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you're right. And once, but once again, you know, Richard Sharp might have been quite good if he hadn't got entangled in Boris Johnson's. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, had, he just, had he just applied just without applied being engaged yeah, yeah. in this? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, Gabriel, really good speech. I know you've got a busy day ahead. As Gabriel Pogger there, Whitehall editor of The Times. And actually, a point that Gabriel's made on. Uh, uh, t- uh, Twitter this morning, he's pointed out the reporting of Richard Sharp wouldn't have happened with the team of editors and lawyers, crucially, uh, as Boris Johnson issued denials and white lies to uh, to uh, deter the Sunday Times from publishing it at all, which is a good reminder that investigative journalism takes resources and money. So the best thing you can do is subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times so they can carry on uh, revealing the stuff that people don't want revealed. Let's turn our attention now to a story, well, it's partly inspired by the story that's on the front of the Times today, Gambling Curbs to Save Young from Addiction. Um, we talked uh, a bit about this yesterday, but this is the, the the overhaul of the gambling industry. But specifically, young adults will face tougher gambling curbs. Uh, under 25s will undergo enhanced checks on their finances and have stakes limited to a maximum of between two and four pounds, while those over 25, uh, it might be over 15 pounds. We saw similar stories about um, the idea of banning new drivers under the age of 25 from giving lifts to other young passengers. As our resident young person, James, how do you feel about this? Um, oh, God. Um, speaking as a young person, well, con- conflicted. You know, I- I- I'm not in any way in favour of um, what I think is incredibly dodgy and suspicious gambling industry, which I think has done a lot of very terrible things. But I do think this idea of splitting off young people as a kind of separate category and, you know, we used to have, you know, kind of legal age of responsibility, mm-hmm. then adults. And now, you know, there's the stuff with the driving story that you were mentioning that came out um, recently about how, you know, in your first year after learning to drive, if you're younger than 25, I think you won't be able to have passengers or friends in your car. There's this kind of slightly sort of strange, creeping idea that we're now extending this thing that isn't being a child, it isn't being adolescence. There's yet there's another stage between yeah. kind of being an adolescent and a grown-up. And I kind of think, I don't know, I'm a little bit suspicious of that slightly infantilizing thing towards people who are legally adults. And it's weird, Jenny, because there's lots of contradictions. There's the, there's the move to lower the voting age to 16, while also putting up the age you can get married. I think it's now gone up to 18. And now 25 rather than 21 is emerging as a new 
as a new line in the sand? I think it's ridiculous. I think James <laughs> is completely right. I think I think we're living in a society that's just infantilizing people at later and later ages. And also, the inconsistency here, as you say, is mad. On the one hand, we're saying to um, children, you must know your gender when you're young, and you can do, you can have life changing surgery, and you you can have you know critical bits of your genitals locked off if you if you if you feel you're in the wrong sex and people are certainly free to do that over the age of 18 and now we're saying but you can't gamble more than two pounds i'm 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 with james in saying that um i'm totally against the gambling industry and the way it works now but i think these new restrictions should apply across all ages and i think the question about driving again can you imagine the situation you're an 18 year old you've just got your license and suddenly you can't for instance drive um, your friend to work and nor yeah. could you take your younger siblings to school you can't be of any use to the family i think we have to look look back at the context of all of this you know we we we, we now think that people um are incapable of taking decisions until one third of the way through their entire lives yeah. and that's just not feasible if you look at english history um edward the fourth won the throne of england by winning a crucial battle at the age of 18 and now we're turning around and saying, oh, you can't even drive your friend until you're 25. And this is insane. And actually, the thing about the driving, as, you know, grow up on the Somerset levels, get, being able to drive, or actually, I think probably having a friend who could drive, I was quite old for my year, but was transformative yeah. in terms of actually being able to get a job, uh, which didn't yes. involve parents. You know, my parents were thrilled when they didn't have to drop me off at home base anymore. I could drive myself. Um, but, you know, going to college, getting a job, seeing your friends, the idea that you then can't, you know, having the little tin in the dashboard where people put a pound in if you gave them a lift and all that, pay for petrol money. It's just a complete misunderstanding of how people actually live their lives. Yeah, it's mental. Because I, I still I still can't drive. But I remember one of the great... What? I know. Well, no. Every time <laughs> He's I suggest, uh, every a, time I suggest I should learn to drive, everyone starts looking nervous. That's and, a times two front. front <laughs> yeah, if I know. I've seen I know. Um, but I remember. Yeah. I, even though I can't drive, one of the transformative moments for me of you know being a teenager was when my friend Robert Stewart learned to drive. Yeah. And then suddenly my life was completely different. Yeah. You know, we went camping. We went. You know, driving around Newcastle and everywhere. And you know, a world that had been quite small was suddenly way more full of possibilities. And that was great. <laughs> I love and how it, my possibilities were going to work in home base and you went to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's... It's, a, it's, also, it's also very anti-green, if you think that we're trying to save the planet. Yes, the idea that yeah. you have a whole lot of 18-year-olds all in their individual in cars, driving around expensively. <laughs> it's just not feasible. Yeah, it doesn't make any... Yeah, I think it... And it also just smacks of a... Both of them smack of a... We don't quite know what to do. We know we should probably just lower the limits on gambling for everyone but we what we can't so upset the gambling issue so we'll just do it for the young people we know that maybe we should i don't know make the driving test tougher or well we won't do that we'll just fudge it and make life a bit it's harder for young depressing people. sense of young people being slightly electorally expendable and we can be the ones yeah. who are just bashed yeah but i also think it makes young people feel, feel very depressed about their lives yeah. if you say to them we're going to hold you forever in this extended adolescence yeah and at the same time you can marry you can join the army yeah and yet you can't drive your friends? I think there's a whole series in this. Uh, we get, um, James married to learn to drive, get married and join the army. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of those things will end up killing me? <laughs> <laughs> right, let's turn our attention to this. This is coming back to our screens. Oh, it's just a big sausage. Big sausage on the big fork coming in. That's what we want. James has got no idea what I'm talking about. Yes, it's been announced they're rebooting Grange Hill. 
with some of the same cast as the original show. It's going to be a movie, apparently. Well, Rachel Cook is the New Statesman's TV critic and a self-professed grain chill expert in a crowded field. She's the leading grain chill expert. Morning, Rachel. <laughs> Uh, hello. But so, I don't think the field's that crowded since <laughs> no one there's actually seen it, which seems a bit... Yeah, so we need to explain rubbish. this. Jenny, you've never seen Grange Hill. No, I grew up without a television, sorry. I know, I, my friends talked about it. <laughs> and James, your explanation? Uh, I was uh, probably born too late and watching other, other TV shows. Were you, re- were you reading books again? I may have may, may, may <laughs> been reading books. But I did, I did watch the 20-minute episode I sent... Um, my verdict is not succession, is it? In terms of <laughs> in terms of the script and the acting, you know. I think the budget was a little smaller. Exactly right. I needed some helicopters and Logan no Roy to... Jets. Yeah. <laughs> but there was less swearing than you would have liked. <laughs> exactly. Probably would have been more really. So, Rachel, explain why you're such a fan of Grange Hill. Well, I'm, I'm not a fan now, but as a child, it was the most important and beloved show by Miles and it's very hard to explain now but it transformed uh, television for kids because it was the first time I mean before Grange Hill came along everything was a bit E Nesbit. you know you had to watch dramas with very posh children um, <laughs> uh, dressed as Edwardian sort of tank tops sort of knitted tank tops and yeah, yeah you know and it was all and and you know there wasn't I mean it was basically posh kids there wasn't I mean you have to remember there was only there were only two TV channels and um, ITV's output well it wasn't as good as the BBC's and also lots of parents my parents included wouldn't let me watch ITV they thought it would rot my brain so you didn't have much choice and then along came this show which was I mean it was exactly like it was that's what that's true it, it, it was... I, I, I was at a huge comprehensive school in Sheffield and everything in the show looked and sounded I mean accents apart sounded uh, and looked yeah. like like my daily life and that was incredible and yeah. it was it was like a cult, and if you missed it, there was no video, so if you missed it, you really missed it. If you missed it, you were completely out of the loop. Um, you felt devastated. Kids who weren't allowed to watch it, you know, some parents disapproved of it. Yeah, because it was a bit, it was a bit spicy. Sorry for them. Yeah. Well, because it not only it not only had an impact on the viewers, it then the, the famous Just Say No drugs campaign <laughs> uh, was so successful, they, they were invited to the White House and met Nancy Reagan. So this is Lee McDonald, who played Zamo, mm. who uh, spoke to Nancy Reagan. Let's take a listen. Happy to have you all here. What is your job as patron of the Just So No campaign? What is my job? Yeah, what does it involve? Well, it involves trying to get more people, young people, involved with, with uh, joining Just Say No clubs and forming Just Say No clubs and becoming more knowledgeable about drugs. So um, that was a huge. That was a huge moment, wasn't it, Rachel? Yeah, Zamo Zamo McGuire was a smackhead. He was a miniature smackhead, and uh, he was always zonked out in corridors. And I mean, people like to say that um, Grangehill dealt with issues, but you never, we never perceived it as that. It wasn't preachy. It was a soap opera, and yeah. you were just caught up in the storylines. And, and you know, um, posh people will say, well, of course, there were not little tiny smackheads in schools. But, you know, in my school, <laughs> there were lots of people who were on glue and, you know... Oh, my uh, school. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then. I'll tell you what, just, let's just play out just because I want everyone to have this stuck in their head for the rest of the day. Say no, no. Yeah, remember, kids, just say no and you'll have that stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Rachel Cook from the New Statesman, the TV critic and big fan of Grange Hill. And uh, they've never seen it. Jenny Russell and James Marriott. But you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we go back 45 years to the big Rock Against Racism concert. Yeah, we're going back to the 1970s today. Racial tensions boiling over on the streets of Britain. The far-right National Front building support at the ballot box. And then enter the musicians. In August 1976, Eric Clapton went on stage at the Birmingham Odeon, drunk, and declared, Enoch was right. I think we should send them all back. Sid Vicious and Susie Sue were wearing swastikas as fashion statements. And even David Bowie told Playboy, yes, I believe very strongly in fascism, and said that Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. He later expressed regret for that. Well, against that backdrop, other musicians decided to fight back with what became... Rock Against Racism, a series of pub gigs culminated 45 years ago this weekend with a massive march with tens of thousands of people at marching from Trafalgar Square to a concert in Victoria Park with some of the biggest names in music at the time, including The Clash, who we heard from uh, just a moment ago. And Tom Robinson was on the bill. We'll hear from him in a moment. But first, Roger Huddle was one of the organisers. There was a real increase in, in racist attacks. And then, on the top of all that, Bowie comes back from Berlin doing that stupid uh, dupe thing. And, but not anywhere near as bad as uh, Clapton. Clapton's outrage at the uh, his Birmingham concert on 13th of August. Uh, a few of us met up 
uh, Red Saunders penned a letter, we all signed it, sent it to the music press, basically saying that Clapton was being, that he's the greatest colonialist of the music, and to fall for all that uh, media crap and all the rest of it about uh, what was going on was just so outrageous. But to actually go on about Enoch Powell, that was the, that was the killer. Yeah, he said Enoch Powell was right, I think we should send them all back. He said more than that, but yeah, that he, he agreed with Powell, and so did Rod Stewart. So I've never listened to him since. So how then did you go from group of mates writing a letter to the enemy in the music press into that then becoming a movement and then becoming an event? You have to wing these things. I mean, we didn't know. We what we said at the bottom of the letter. P.S. We're gonna well, we said we're gonna start a movement called Rock Against Racism. We got a P.O. box number uh, at Cotton's Gardens and. We uh, we just said, if you want to join, write. And, of course, three, four, five hundred people vote. So we thought, OK, OK, we're going to have to do it. That was that was a key thing. And once you'd got to know you had to do it, because we'd all been around for a long time, I mean, both me and Red were in the Vietnam, anti-Vietnam war protest. We was involved in the uh, the Rivers of Blood in 68, our picketed uh, meetings of Enoch Powell in almost every city. So it got to that point where we thought, but we're also cultural people. You know, the, the the idea of not doing it with music or art didn't enter it. I mean, both of us, uh, both me and Red, are all constructivists from the Russian revolutionary days. We both think about revolutionary uh, war posters as uh, as a propaganda. We weren't frightened of the word propaganda. Uh, Red used to be in an agitational uh, theatre group. Um, I was uh, a poster maker and a, a, a designer. And also I was a big, big, big black music fan. And what was going on in music when you had Sid Vicious Su- uh, and Susie Sue wearing swastikas of fashion statement, David Bowie saying, that Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. <laughs> yeah. Were they just being controversialists? Did they believe this stuff? Did they not understand it, albeit, you know, it was closer to the Second World War then yeah. than we are now? What do you think they were doing? I think uh, I think Bowie just blew his mouth off. and it, it, I mean, he gave money to the ANL because he was so bloody upset with himself. Yeah. And uh, unlike Clapton. Banshee and Vicious. See, I think this is important. There were two kinds of punk music. There was the pessimistic and the hopeful. And we went with the hopeful, which was The Clash, uh, Tom Robinson, The Fall. Really, Sid Vicious, when he died, he died as he went. That was what he was. He was a, a nihilist and he didn't believe in anything. And same with Susie. Susie wouldn't have anything to do with us. We asked her to do things. and We wouldn't... The jam, buddy, put the Union Jack on their, on their bass drum. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, they said it was like pop music. But you know you don't fly the flag, not 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 when the flag what the flag means to the colonial peoples. We just had to deal with it. Um, but we we asked people to do it. But there was enough really good. And also the other really important thing was British reggae was just starting out. You had uh, Black Slate, uh, Steel Pulse, Aswad, uh, Matumbi. You had all this birth of what I call English reggae who were not writing some love songs, but mainly they was writing about the black experience in in Hansworth, in Brixton or whatever. And that joining of them two things uh, was the way that we made it work. Tell me about 1978. You decided to put together this live event, which just seemed to get bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
How did it come about? Well, we had it up. It's always similar. We go for a meeting. I, I used to be a DJ and I was I was gigging one night for a, a gay switchboard. The live band was Tom Robinson. And so we we got to know each other. And then he would come to the he would come to all the meetings. So he was also a leaflet envelope poker. He wasn't just on the stage. Yeah. And we had a chat and we thought we'd do I think all of us thought we yeah, we could do something live, open air. Up, up front. I was very influenced by that time with a fantastic newsreel I saw of the Grateful Dead coming into, I think it was some stadium in in uh, Texas, all flying the Vietnamese flag. And I, and I thought, you know, you could, there's a way of doing this. And I remember I'll be on a Vietnam demonstration where we turned the fountains red and, uh, and uh, all the American contingent turned up with Viet Cong flags. So I knew that that kind of spectacle could become a political event. So we had a meeting and uh, we got some money off of the Anti-Nazi League. And the Anti-Nazi League uh, were important to it because uh, they gave us some money. Me and a guy called Jerry Fitzpatrick, we sorted out our sound system, which if you look at the film White Riot, uh, Tom Robinson finally admits that the, t- the sound system was crap, which it was. <laughs> it was a rock and roll sound system. It didn't fit, no bass, you know. Uh, and also the wind just took it away. Uh, but it didn't matter. So we got a sound system. Red Saunders knew uh, the guys who put the stage up. Uh, the local a l in, in Hackney guarded the stage. We lied to the council. Um, we couldn't do it. You couldn't do it today. It was guerrilla. We couldn't do it. I mean, I told the council we'd be, we expected 500 because we didn't want to have port lose And how many turned up? Uh, 80,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been a lot of toilets. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, but, so we did it on the run. Yeah. I think what it is is both Jerry Fitzpatrick in the A&L and Red Saunders in up with us, both of them weren't frightened of thinking big. I mean, we, that, no, there's no timidity about it. We went for it. That was Roger Huddle. It was one of the organisers of the Rock Against Racism Carnival. Well, on the bill on April the 30th, 1978, was The Clash, Steel Pulse, X-Ray Specs, Jimmy Percy from Sham 69 and Tom Robinson. Long before the Tom Robinson band even existed, there was a letter uh, in the Melody Maker in the NME. In fact, it arrived the same week in both papers that was complaining about Eric Clapton's racist remarks supporting... Enoch Powell on stage in Birmingham and uh, it wasn't signed by a person, it was just signed Rock Against Racism with an address. Nobody had ever heard of Rock Against Racism but we went, what is that? That sounds like a really, really good, important thing to have. So I wrote to the address and said, you know, what is it? How can I join? The nice thing about it in 76 was that it was strictly grassroots. It wasn't, they weren't trying to get famous people to lend them credibility. They were aiming to just run it at local level in small clubs and benefits and college gigs and stuff. And when people around the, co- around the country wanted to put on a Rock Against Racism concert, they'd uh, just write off to the head office and they'd send them a kit uh, with the graphics that they could use and advice on how to make posters and they would arrange for a reggae band to come up from London if they didn't have any locally. So it just happened kind of growing up like mushrooms all around the country. And uh, it was really an exciting thing to be part of all through 76, well, late 76 and then 77. The thing was just growing at grassroots level. It wasn't until the carnival against the Nazis uh, that we're marking the anniversary of now that the whole thing went big scale and suddenly had people you had heard of uh, rather than just people who had their hearts in the right place. It's interesting that it's bored out of... 
in part other musicians rather than just being a sort of musicians reacting to, I don't know, a political party or a political event or whatever. You know, it was, you know, taking on one of your own or several of your own, whether it was David Bowie or Eric Clapton or whatever. Did that make it more exciting or more, I don't know, dangerous, difficult? It was more depressing, to be honest, too, because Eric Clapton made his living, uh, made his whole name being the great white blues guitarist. And most of the material he'd covered was covers of music by black musicians. Uh, certainly in the early days, he was he was covering standard Chicago blues, and then he covered that Bob Marley hit, I Shot, I Shot the Sheriff. And uh, there was a great PS at the end of that first letter that went, who shot the sheriff? Who shot the sheriff, Eric? Sure as hell wasn't you. So take me back to that day then, in uh, 1978. You find yourself on stage. Roger says he told the council to expect 500 people because then you wouldn't need toilets. <laughs> and what, 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 people turn up. What did could... you expect when you turned up? And then what did what confronted you? OK, I'll rewind here because uh, the whole thing was not only the carnival in the park, but there was the march to get to mm. the park. So we started out in Trafalgar Square and uh, I got up, you know, and uh, made a speech and uh, I, I, I shudder to think what I actually said, but it it was such an energising occasion because we had no idea how many people were going to come to this thing. So we thought if we did really, really well, there might be 10,000 or maybe 20,000. And the PA was booked to be big enough for 20,000. And people didn't stop coming. The buses kept rolling up. Uh, People were still pouring into the square as the head of the column had reached Victoria Park. And I marched the whole way on it. I wanted to be part of it and know what it was. So that when I got to the park, there was already like thousands and thousands of people there. So it was already a tangible sense of excitement. We had no idea what the numbers were going to be. And so what was it like then stepping on stage in front of that enormous crowd? Well, then when we walked out there and actually saw the, the crowd spreading, literally as far as the eye could see, it was extraordinary. I mean, we knew that the sound wasn't even reaching the people at the back of the audience because the faders on the mixing desk had all been pushed to the very top of the desk uh, and uh, the PA was cranked right up and I'm I'm sure the speakers were jumping out of the the grills at the front of the boxes Uh, and even then people weren't hearing it. But it was just the sense of the being there and realising that you're not alone. I think this is the main thing. Political music doesn't always change minds, you know. I don't think people... I don't think that many National Front skinheads turned up to that show and and thought, oh, I'm so stupid, I've seen the error of my ways. But as a tonic for the troops, for people who felt run down and ground down by racist remarks from their parents, schoolmates, teachers, what have you, they would suddenly find themselves in a crowd with tens of thousands of other people who feel the same way and go, yeah, that's right, we're not alone. I think that's that then spread out from that occasion. It wasn't so much that people who'd been in the papers or had, had records in the charts got up on a stage and said something. I think it's more that the individuals in the audience felt energised by singing along with those songs and um, went out and actually made a difference. And just finally, uh, tell me a bit about the demographics of the whole thing, because rock was very, actually you could probably argue still is, very white. You know, a lot of the acts, a lot of the people who organised it were white as well. But then maybe that's sort of the point. That, you know, it's not about, well, racism is just something that, that black people have to worry about. Did it, did it make a difference it was, it was rock against racism 
them not musicians against racism. They're actually this sort of quite white music tribe actually came together and said, you know, we're worried about this as well. Punk rock really helped because punk rock had very, very close ties with the dub reggae scene. So mm. uh, the Clash themselves were huge reggae fans and cl covered famous reggae numbers. And John Lydon of the Sex Pistols was deep into his reggae. And so getting reggae bands onto the same bill as white bands and making sure that the black artists always finished the show uh, was, was an important step. And to get up and then have a jam together at the end and bring those audiences together meant a lot. And Rubika Shah's brilliant movie White Riot really gives a sense of what it actually did mean to people in the black and Asian communities at that time to see white kids turning out in those kinds of numbers in solidarity and support. The musician Tom Robinson, who played at the Rock Against Racism Carnival 45 years ago this weekend. Up next, we'll hear from someone in the crowd, a young man called Billy Bragg. 45 years ago this weekend, only 100,000 people converged on London for a massive Rock Against Racism concert organised by, among others, the art designer Roger Huddle. Well, in the crowd that day was a young Billy Bragg, you know, I kind of grew up listening to a lot of American 60s soul music when I was, when I was a, in, this was in the early 70s. And that was kind of um, imbued with the politics of the civil rights movement. I was listening to a lot of American singer-songwriters from Bob Dylan onwards. They had that same reflection of what was going on in the 60s, the anti-Vietnam stuff. But the thing about rock, rock Against Racism was it was our generation, no disrespect to Roger and these guys, <laughs> but, but, but Rock Against Racism was the day that my generation found our Vietnam, which was the battle against discrimination of all kinds. And I say as of all kinds because Roger and his mates did an amazing thing for me. They introduced me to the first out gay men I ever seen. And that was when Tom played. Tom had a, a song called Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey, sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. That was his big sort of like political song. And when he sang that at the at the gig, all these guys around me and my mates started kissing each other on the lips. Now, I was 20, but I'd never met an out gay man, you know, which it wasn't uncommon in the mid-70s, yeah. you know, uh, when you could get your head kicked in for being gay. You know, it was very brave of Tom to sing that song. It was brave of those guys. They had a, we'd marched up under a banner that said Gays Against Nazis or, or Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay or something like that. We just happened to be marching in front of them, you know. And, and I, I kind of looked at them and thought, what are these gays guys doing? This is about black people, this thing. But it took me like five minutes to drop the penny that actually it's about discrimination of all kinds and that includes not just racism and homophobia but sexism as well yeah. and disableism you know so I, I really can say that my world had changed from that moment when I come home obviously it was a Sunday you know the tube still ran the same time my mum still made liver and bacon I sure always did but my whole perspective of the world and how music could interact with politics had, had completely changed and I really don't think I'll be sitting here talking to you today we're not for that experience and I often reflect back on that and think well what what really happened here? what was it that, that changed my view of the world was it the music well the music done a great thing I mean I was a big fan of the clash I knew about Tom you know the the reggae bands 
were great as well. I missed polystyrene and x-ray specs. We didn't get there in time to see them. I've come to the conclusion, really, that what, what, what it was that gave me the courage of my convictions wasn't actually the bands. It was actually seeing 80,000 kids just like me standing together for something made me realise I wasn't the only person who gave a shit about this stuff. So when I went back to work on Monday, when I was in an office with a bunch of guys who were casually racist, homophobic and sexist, I started to think to myself, well, I'm not like you, mate. I'm different from you. I'm not going to fall into that trap. And those of us who were at that gig, we went away and did our best to, to try and, you know, make a better world. You know, the National Front were a huge threat. So the, 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 the kind of banner that, that Roger and his pals raised really drew a lot of people to it. And, you know, punk would be just a wacky haircut and a swastika T-shirt if it weren't for The Clash. You know, The Clash were what made punk political and rock against racism. That gig, Victoria Park in 1978, that defines The Clash for me. And it's interesting, Roger, because sometimes people say, well, you, you organised a big event and you didn't end racism, but you sort of forget about the long tail of, like, you bring people together. You know, Billy's entire life since has been inspired by the fact that you got like-minded people together. Racism is as, as, as British as the as Biggles, as Dave Ridgery wrote. It's, it's right in the system. It's all bubbling to the surface now. You've got the most racist Home Secretary we've ever, we've ever had. They openly talk now about sending people out, uh, arresting people, trying to escape brutality, etc. So racism is going to be here as long as this system exists. But the Nazis we beat. People forget the NF were finished by 79. Uh, they really... A lot of people say, oh, well, Thatcher stole... Well, I was going to say that. Was yeah. it Was it the the, the left mu musicians who killed off the National Front or was it Margaret Thatcher? No, well, no. Well, no, it, I, I think you can say that. I mean, look what happened with the British, British National Party embarking in 2010, yeah. right? In 2006, they won 13 seats. Every candidate they put for Barking and Dagenham Council, they won, OK? But due to a concerted effort by anti-fascist and anti-racist, when it came to 2010, not only did they not gain any more seats when they put up a full slate, they lost every single seat yeah. they had. And that defeat was a, it was a terminal blow for the BNP. Where are they now? They don't really exist yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. So people coming together, each generation has to face up to these things. Each generation yeah. has to find a way to deal with racism because it never goes away. It manifests itself in different ways. Yeah. And and our, in our generation, what we saw with the National Front, it's still there with other people. I mean, you know, the Sorella Braverman saying, you know, these uh, people who come on the boats don't share our values. This kind of othering, this is Powlite. This is a Powlite argument. And it's shameful that it should come from a woman of colour. It's almost unbelievable. To say ebbs and flows. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the important thing. Racism ebbed. I mean, no matter what Thatcher said mm. and the whole thing about being swamped by Asians, yeah. by an alien nation, all that stuff, it ebbed in the 80s. And then it, it, right into the 90s, really. It didn't start flowing back with until 1999 and then uh, 2001 and 2003 and the war on terror. And with the war on terror and the demonisation of the Muslim and Islamophobia, then racism started building again. But up until that, it ebbed and then yeah. it flowed back again. The yeah. same as in 19... In 1930s, when the Jewish and the and the socialists stopped Mosley, in yeah. it, it ebbs back and then it ebbs forward again. But but fascism it lurks, lurks. Yeah. The question is, do do you allow it to become respectable? Right. Mm. What was happening in the 70s was the National Front because they were winning council uh, votes in the GLC. Fascism was becoming respectable, and with the BMP, the BMP, so Nick Griffin on question time yeah, and all respectable. that. Yeah, yeah, do you yeah. allow it to become MEP. respectable? Yeah. Do you, is it is it acceptable to go and vote for these people, or, yeah. or or is race or is it still seen as as something that's racism as being a, a, a negative thing, and people recognise that in society? And although the sort of campaigning that we've done doesn't end racism, it ensures that uh, those ideas never becoming respectable. And then you, you know, the new launch 
red wedge, yeah. Billy. And you could argue, if you actually look at them, what happened at elections, that's been less successful. Do you think that these these sort of movements are better when they're sort of issues-based rather than party political? Is there, is there that difference there? Well, I think, you, you know, you have to see what each generation feels strongly about. I mean, you know, the, you've got to see red wedge in the context of the miners' strike, you know, what yeah. happened with the, you know, with the defeat of the miners. Those of us who, in, in the music industry who'd been out to support the miners, what are we going to do next? Well, yeah. the next opportunity to defeat Margaret Thatcher was the 87 election. Yeah. The best vehicle to do that was the Labour Party. Yeah. So the, the the question is whether or not whether or not you win, it's whether or not you engage. Do we engage in mainstream politics? Do we engage in mass demonstrations? Do we engage in manifesting ideas of this present generation, or do we just spend our time, you know, uh, arguing with each other on Twitter? And I think that's <laughs> the thing. That, the thing that we had with yeah. music was that we had a, a, a medium that, that drew the majority of yeah. young people to it. You know, it yeah. was our it was the way we spoke to one another and how we spoke to our parents' generation. There were four music papers. You know, it's really significant. Roger and Red wrote to the music papers yeah. because that's where everyone was. Now, yeah. where we where you do that today, I'm not really sure. You'd probably have to get uh, some influencer on TikTok yeah, to go big yeah, on yeah, it or yeah. something like that. But I was, I was going to ask you that. Where, what, what's the battle now, Roger? Where's where's the where's the equivalent? I think the battle, movement now. So the battle is around refugees, and the battle is around the whole brutal uh, thing about Rwanda boats and all that. I think Billy put his finger on it though when he says about it wasn't so much the bands on the stage at the uh, yeah. the carnival; it was the eighty thousand who marched from Trafalgar Square and were in the audience. Because when it comes down to it, we look to that as an anti-racist. I always look to the people who are going to fight racism, not to the people who say they're going to deal with it. So I wouldn't trust Starmer as far as I. He's not going to be an anti-racist. Or he'll be an anti-racist if he wins in votes, but otherwise he'll be a racist because it gets him, it doesn't lose votes. I mean, that's the, the crucial thing about official politics. Official politics is by its very nature opportunistic. And uh, so therefore you always look at the audience. You always look at the people you can mobilise. And who would it be now if we had Rock Against Racism now for the for the... Uh, boat people who went there, who would be the equivalent of the gay men that I saw kissing would be the trans community yeah, and the non-binary community. Those people, those fights are still there. Yeah. If the trans uh, community lose their rights, then the, the, the people that have tried to put them back, that they'll use that momentum to go after equal marriage yeah. and go after the gays and lesbians again. We're back where we are with uh, Section 28. So, these, as I say, these fights never go away. The question is, what role do cultural activists have yeah, yeah. in helping to focus solidarity? Does music have a role to play does poetry does theater does you know podcasting does that have a role to play in helping to bring people together to fight these things and i think it, i believe it does not to change the world you know music can't change the world but and trust me and people listening at home are annoyed me saying that i've been doing my best for 40 years trust me i speak from experience but here's what i can tell you here's what i can tell you music can although it can't actually change the world it can make you believe the world can be changed and that's what i got from that day in victoria yeah. park i came away with a firm belief that we could make a difference to our society, to our uh, people of colour, to uh, gays and lesbians, to, to women who are victims of sexism, we could make a difference by working together. And that's the key thing that music has the ability to do, to bring people together in common cause. Betty Bragg there, slightly potty mouth, Betty Bragg. So apologies about the language on that. We also heard from Roger Huddle, who helped to organise the Rock Against Racism concert, and Tom Robinson, who was on the stage 45 years ago this weekend. That was Billy Bragg and Roger Huddle, remembering 45 years ago the Rock Against Racism concert. We also heard from Tom Robinson. Well, that brings us to the end of the Red Box podcast for today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 